Health literacy is what I call the sleeping giant. We don't know about it, but it's, it's, it's hitting us. It's striking us from every angle. And, and we just don't recognize it. A lot of the uh, disparities in healthcare are really a result of uh, health literacy. And so that trend is there. And if you want to fix it, I mean, don't marvel at the problem. You've got to go back and fix the cause. This episode of Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. We create thought leadership content that supports your value proposition narrative via original or curated digital assets for omni-channel distribution and engagement via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, co-founder, and principal co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's episode, our guest is Joseph Webb, Doctor of Science and Fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Dr. Webb is the CEO of Nashville General Hospital, a 150-bed academic system with more than 22 clinics and serves as the teaching hospital of the historic Meharry Medical College. Dr. Webb earned his Doctorate of Science in Health Services Administration from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And with that brief introduction, Fred, over to you. Thanks so much, Greg. And Dr. Webb, welcome to Pop Health Week. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Really looking forward to this conversation. So why don't we start a little bit with you providing a little bit of your background and um, information about Nashville General, the hospital itself. Okay. Uh, my uh, my background, uh, like you, I've spent a number of years in healthcare and healthcare leadership. Uh, actually, I began my career uh, in behavioral health. Uh, I managed uh, behavioral health hospitals in a uh, for-profit system, uh, later moved on to uh, uh, acute care uh, with the uh, with a system out of Memphis, the Methodist Healthcare System, Methodist Labana Healthcare System. Uh, spent a number of years there. I'm a graduate of uh, Tennessee State University, HBCU, uh, with a uh, bachelor's and a master's and a second master's from uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham in their healthcare administration program and a doctorate from the University of Alabama at Birmingham uh, in their uh, uh, doctorate uh, in uh, health science, uh, health administration. Uh, and so uh, that that's kind of uh, my uh, lead up to where I am now uh, as the uh, CEO of Nashville General Hospital. Now I'm celebrating actually at the end of this month will be uh, exactly seven years uh and so uh we've had a we've had a good run here it's uh essentially been uh been a turnaround uh, i have a great team uh that we've pulled together to uh to to manage that so we have some uh, excellent uh programs in place uh, and our our mission just to to get things out and, and into the open here as a uh, safety net hospital a metropolitan uh, uh public hospital nashville uh, our mission is to improve the health of the population by providing equitable access to coordinated and patient-centered care. Uh, and we do that regardless of an individual's ability to pay. And now that is a tricky equation, as you know. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it's fascinating that you mentioned early on your original work was in behavioral health. I too spent six years in for-profit behavioral health hospitals running them as well. And I, I would assume that that allows you to look at things a little bit differently, particularly within populations you're dealing with in Nashville. It absolutely does. Um, and, and and honestly, you know, I saw that in, in your brief uh, description there of your, your background. And I said, you know what, it sounds like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be talking to myself because uh, you know, once you understand behavioral health and how it impacts the overall healthcare, you know, it stated that one in three individuals will experience some form of, you know, mental health or behavioral issues, health issues uh, during the course of their lives. Uh, and unless we know how to address that as a part of an illness and not just as something that is shown by society, then we're not going to be effective with caring for our overall population. So it's very critical. It's a very critical aspect. And most, as you know, most uh, hospital CEOs are really not that familiar with behavioral health and, and, and really would rather not be so uh, much a part of their delivery system. And that just gives you a unique lens, I would imagine, on the overall approach that you're, sounds like you're trying to do with some of these other unique programs. Um, and could you talk a little bit about, I understand the hospital is about 150 beds, is that right? It is licensed, 150 beds. Um, we're not operating all 150 of them, usually about up to 110, 115, which is about where most hospitals operate in their uh, uh, percentage of capacity. Um, so, so yes, um, we have created uh, a couple of programs here that uh, just to give a quick background on why we did that, um, you know, the chronic care model, which I, I saw some of that in, in, in your uh, description as well. The chronic care model, which was created at the McCall Institute by Ed Wagner, you're probably familiar with that. Uh, Michael Parchment is now the uh, uh, director over that. He's, uh, Ed Wagner was his predecessor. And so the chronic care model, which we established that, and it, it covers the uh, the scope and the framework of how we want to deliver healthcare. But one thing about the chronic care model is it doesn't provide you with all of the operational activities that you need. And so what we did was we integrated the patient-centered medical home model and patient-centered specialty practice model, NCQA model, uh, into that because it has over about 140 uh, elements, has six standards and about 140 elements, which as I was reviewing uh, opportunities to address chronic care, I recognized that the patient-centered medical home model actually operationalizes uh, the chronic care model. And it gives you very uh, rigorous standards and, uh, and uh, structures and processes that you can put into place uh, and, and actualize the, uh, the chronic care model. So that's really what we do here. Uh, we integrate those two models and quickly recognize that, you know, roughly 50 million or more people in this country struggle with food insecurity. So food insecurity is a very um, uh, daunting task for most because uh, you know, it's it stated in the uh, in the numbers that one in three adults in this country will experience that and will have difficulty with uh, at a certain once they reach a certain age uh, acquiring uh, their medication and or food or both. 
So oftentimes that choice has to be made. The other piece of that is uh, food insecurity drives individuals to more than likely uh, rely on food that is very non-nutritious. And we know food is medicine, we are what we eat. So if you're prone to chronic conditions and you're eating foods that are high in, you know, everything, sugar, carbs, and all of the stuff that you don't need to be putting in your body that's causing, causing a lot of inflammation within your system, then you're just gonna exacerbate what is inevitable to be chronic conditions, right? Whether it's congestive heart failure, diabetes, or, or a hypertension. And, and oftentimes, you know, when individuals uh, are categorized, if you're risk gratifying and individuals are categorized in that five to 10% that's gonna consume, and as a, as a former CEO, you know this, they're gonna consume anywhere from 50 to 70% of your resources. Now, so what you have to do is you have to stratify that population. And once you can do that, then you can identify their needs. And nine times out of 10, there's going to be a behavioral health challenge within that high risk population. And so uh, if you can figure out a way to address the behavioral health piece and you can figure out a way to address the food insecurity piece, then you're likely to be able to to put that individual on a pathway to better health. So how do you how do you address that food insecurity? Uh, what we did, and, and this was a creation here at the hospital, I, I spent about 14 of my years in the Memphis market uh, on the board of a, uh, of a food bank, uh, the Mid-South Food Bank. It was uh, Tri-State, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. And they, we delivered uh, distributed about 20 million pounds of food per year. But one thing that I never uh, could get a really good grasp on with, with delivering at that kind of capacity was making that food nutritious because you had to rely on all different sources. So uh, fast forward, uh, coming into this environment, uh, I knew we needed to address an issue with food insecurity because the population that we serve being uh, basically that disproportionately uh, indigent population, I, I knew that we would have some food insecurity matters going on and that would exacerbate the care and it would drive up the cost and it's, it's, it's not healthy for the patient. So I, the way we did this was every patient that comes into uh, contact with the hospital through whatever entry point, ER or direct through the uh, ambulatory division uh, is administered a, uh, a uh, uh, food insecurity uh, assessment. Now, if what we call it, if they test positive then for that, then what we do is we have that, that provider will write a prescription that will go into the electronic health system uh, for that individual to receive food from the food, uh, food pharmacy. Well, there, there are registered dietitians that are in our food pharmacy and uh, a food pharmacy is set up kind of like a grocery store. It has aisles. Uh, there are aisles of food that are low sodium. There are aisles of food that are uh, low in, in, in sugary and carbs. And then there we have a, uh, a cancer care program here. So there are foods also that are high caloric for our cancer patients. And then there's there's the uh, coolers with the fresh fruits and vegetables. So uh, the uh, dietitian will walk the individual through to select the foods uh, that matches up with their prescription. They get a tote bag and uh, and they uh, oftentimes will have a family member with them 
And so they're also instructed on how to prepare certain foods. And if they ask, then that dietitian will also give them uh, some recipes that are available for preparing foods that they need. So, so that's how the food pharmacy works. They're initially given 12 weeks of food. Uh, and then if you're familiar with the chronic care model, the first item to the left of the chronic care model is community resources. Our, our managed care portion of our ambulatory division uh, our uh, uh, LCSW works with the patient population to make sure that they are searching to find community resources that can support them and to help them move them along socioeconomically. So uh, we try to get them transition off of the food pharmacy if it's possible, but we don't just kick them off. So that's how that works. And you'll give them a source or a resource that they can then go to to continue to get those the uh, food from a food bank or another group like that. And now they're still a part of our, we don't remove them from our care management uh, portion of our ambulatory services here. So once they're under that umbrella, unless they select out, they remain a part of, of our uh, population of patients. And so is your care management team that LCSW talked about continuing to follow up with them at various periods of time, depending on severity level or things like that? Oh, yes. They have uh, regular uh, follow-up visits that are tracked and monitored. And, and, and the care management team is a part of the overall ambulatory division. So we have a number of specialty clinics and we have primary care clinics. And so there, there, there are inter, intra, I should say, referrals going on all the time. And I know that, you know, some of these things are a little bit hard to measure impact of, but have you been able to see any sort of impact yet in terms of measurements of uh, individuals who are going through that program, perhaps seeing differences in weight or, or clinical status, or is it still pretty early for that? You know, no, that's a great question. Uh, and, and we have seen some, um, some, some um, results. Uh, our uh, a diabe a di diabetic patients, uh, as you know, you look at uh, A1C and and, and what we're doing is tracking A1C uh, under control. So, you know, anywhere, I think it's like eight, maybe eight, maybe nine, or under eight or nine, uh, uh, considered as being under control. We went from 38% under control. We're at, we're at 69% under control. Now, hypertension is a tough nut to crack. And, and you're measuring blood pressure. So for that one, it's a little, it's, it's, it's less of, of growth, but it's still, uh, the incline is still going. Uh, so it's just, it's just more difficult to manage, uh, but we're seeing improvement there as well. Now, let me just share this with you. Uh, our uh, patients in the, uh, um, the cancer care program, uh, when we had our uh, accreditation, uh, triennial accreditation, that, that association, the group that does the uh, accreditations for uh, cancer programs, what they noticed was an improvement in the individual patients and uh, our survivorship. And one of the things that happens with the food pharmacy, which was an unintended benefit, I did not, I was not aware of this when I, when, when we were working on putting this program together, but our patients uh, in, in the cancer program oftentimes are individuals that have exhausted resources and they've had to come to us for cancer, cancer care. But whether they have done that uh, by transferring to us or they started with us, that still happens. And individuals that are receiving chemotherapy or other cancer you know, care agents 
have to maintain a certain weight level. Otherwise, you would have to discontinue that, that, that treatment until they can get their weight level up. Well, what this does is if an individual is struggling with uh, food insecurity, then they never have to experience that because we have that uh, component of high caloric foods that I described to you earlier right there in the food pharmacy. So they just get a prescription to the food pharmacy and there you go. Uh, so that, that's how that works. But we saw that and that was recognized under that accreditation and they pointed it out to us that this is an amazing uh, accomplishment that these patients are actually uh, showing better survival rates uh, because of you know their ability to maintain their weight and, and to tolerate their treatment. And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, our guest is Dr. Joseph Webb, the CEO of Nashville General Hospital, a 150-bed academic system with more than 22 clinics that serves as the teaching hospital of the historic Meharry Medical College. That's fantastic. That's a great point. And some of the things that sometimes you pointed out, some people don't consider, hey, you work and fix this one and you suddenly see this spillover effect that leads to a better outcome. Really fantastic. I know you do some other programs too. You've got the, I guess it's called the CHEN program, the Congregational Health and Education Network. What's that? Well, you nailed that. Uh, uh, Most people don't get that name right, but uh, that's exactly what it is. It is a, uh, so it it is a a faith-based initiative. Uh, and, and as you said, Congregational Health and Education Network, that is exactly what it is. Uh, we we, uh, we have now probably about 110 congregations, and, and the number continuously grows as, as other congregations are, become aware of it. But that is basically centered around health disparities, reducing health disparities. Uh, as we know, uh, social determinants of health are the fundamental causes of health disparities. Uh, and, and, you know, the social determinants of health being uh, items such as uh, food insecurity, uh, education attainment, um, uh, access to housing, access to transportation, access to health care. Those are all social determinants of health. And if those are maldistributed, among populations, then you're going to see that maldistribution of those health disparities as well. So uh, we know that um, there are certain populations of individuals who tend to rely heavily on their faith-based organizations, and that science has shown that, particularly African Americans, and uh, there are some other populations that do that. But Uh, So what we've done is we have created this network that focuses on health disparities. Uh, It is now a 501c3, just recently received a fairly decent sized grant. Uh, And and so it's it's definitely off and running. Uh, And um, we focus on, uh, obviously we focus on uh, health disparities, Uh, but the way we go about doing that is to attack it from an educational attainment standpoint, because here's the reason we do that. Uh, Of all of those social determinants of health that I just mentioned, education attainment is the one that will impact the others at a higher, uh, if you're a a, a statistics geek, R score, or, uh, uh, or you could say has a greater correlation 
than the others. And so uh, if you uh, improve your transportation, that doesn't change necessarily the other uh, social determinants of health. But if you improve on your education attainment, then the likelihood of your being able to be at a different socioeconomic status becomes very high. And so longitudinally, what we're doing is working with individuals uh, through uh, particularly our health sciences program here at the hospital and local colleges and universities to, uh, uh, and we haven't reached as much, uh, we haven't gotten as much traction across all of them as we would like, but the system is in place and we're moving in that direction. So education attainment, and then there's um, uh, there's health literacy, uh, and, and then there's um, uh, access, obviously access to healthcare and supporting uh, the, the faith-based congregation. Those are the four pillars that fall under the, um, um, uh, the, the Congregational Health and Education Network we call CHIN. But the premise is this, you cannot achieve health equity until you achieve a more equitable distribution of the social determinants of health. Yep, absolutely. And a question on that, because most people focus on health literacy, but it sounds like you're actually pushing for a more broader education program to get people through various levels of education. Is that part of this? Well, interesting. That's a good question. Uh, education attainment based on that correlation, that strong correlation in all science and research and all that will show that correlation. We're evidence-based. We're an evidence-based healthcare delivery system. And evidence-based has always been in, in, in the medication aspect, but evidence-based has not always been in the management side of healthcare delivery, okay? So we're, we're focusing on all items that we engage uh, as tools into our delivery process uh, is deeply rooted in, in empiricism or evidence. And so, yes, education will tend to change the trajectory of an individual's life. So we can focus on that. Now, health literacy is a different animal. Uh, health literacy is, uh, I don't know if you're aware of, there's a tool of uh, health literacy that is also that was also created by the McCallist, McCall Institute that created the chronic care model. And it works collaboratively with the chronic care model. So we have integrated that into the six standards of the chronic care model and each standard uh, has an element of health literacy that it addresses. So our goal is to weave that into the chronic care model. So it's not something we're trying to take on independently of our overarching framework for healthcare delivery. Absolutely. I just thought it was fascinating when you talked about education because what I was getting at it in a sense is, are your programs helping people stay in school or continue their education and focus on that through this through the Chen network? We're just starting to get traction in that area. What we're doing is uh, there is a workforce development uh, component. Uh, we have one of the local healthcare systems who has created job opportunities for individuals uh, in some of the uh, health sciences uh, studies that we provide here. We're looking to expand the program and continue to grow it, but our, our RAD Tech program, our, our nursing assistant program, and our EEG uh, uh, program, uh, tech program, uh, so uh, EKG tech program, 
And so those are those are starting points of where individuals. It's amazing because you know a rad tech is a two year uh, endeavor, and a smart kid coming out of high school that hadn't decided whether or not they want to go to college for four years or not yet uh, can can go into that program for, and for. In two years, they can earn sixty to seventy thousand dollars, depending on the area of the country they're in, and that's a pretty good uh, living for a two-year education. And so that's what we're pushing and promoting. We have a very small group, and it's not very diverse right now. And so we're looking to bring on more diversity because you know the cost of the program could keep some people away. That goes back to, you know, that uh, that uh, that social determinant of health. And so if you can, if you can, and I, as I say. If you can mitigate the social determinants of health, the impact of the social determinants of health at the local level, you have to prepare to mitigate those social determinants of health. Because if you can't do that, don't expect it to come from on high. And, and those are upstream and they're not about to flow downstream yet. Uh, but if you can mitigate the, the impact of those social determinants of health, which is what we're doing, then you can, you can change the trajectory of your patient population. I know I know the audience can't see this, but I'm smiling ear to ear listening to you because what you're talking about, you know, most people say, oh, we're gonna go solve health literacy, but you're actually tra- trying to solve for that and saying, hey, we're gonna help individuals get through a two-year program or, or get this other thing to help them lift up to create and solve for those social determinants of health. Fantastic, it really is great to hear you talking about that. Yeah, you know, you can be as literate as anyone else in, in the world. <laughs> Only 12% of our population is health literate, by the way. But you can be as literate as anybody, but if you don't have the means right. to access healthcare, right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that, that becomes, it's not, I don't mean to imply that it's secondary, but I, I, I am saying that it is a, it is a part of the overall uh, process that we're putting that we're putting into place, the framework that we have in place. We don't ignore it. It is very much integrated into our system. Well, unfortunately, we've got just a few seconds here, maybe about a minute left. We're out already? Yeah, it's been great. I'd love to get you back, Dr. Webb. It's been fantastic. And talk some more about what you're doing. Really quickly, what has allowed you to turn the system? What culturally wise, et cetera, what have you done? Because it sounds like you've made some great progress in areas. I think the first thing you have to do is, uh, is, is, is meet the people where they are. Uh, hospitals, uh, you know, the public hospital is always, is always going to have a challenge, uh, you know, politically, socially, economically, it's always going to have a challenge. Uh, and we can look at that on a broader scale and we can talk about that sometime, but it's no different when you're dealing with the local, you know, public hospital. Uh, and so you have to, you're dealing with the issue of funding, and so what we've done here is to try to make sure that the cost of care to this large population that we serve is minimized. Our, our goal here, our strategic goal is the triple aim. And that is the patient experience, uh, uh, the uh, outcomes of the patient's uh, care, and the cost per capita. We know that we're at close to 20% of the gross domestic product as a country for cost of healthcare. And so we we consider all of that, and and what we attempt to do here is to mitigate the impact of that by making sure that our cost per capita per patient is as low as we can get it by doing things like the food pharmacy 
that causes that at-risk patient to not to have to drive up their costs by showing up in our ER and having to be admitted to the ICU for an, a diabetic crisis that was avoidable had we done the right things. I really want to thank you for coming on, Dr. Webb. It's been a pleasure to have you on Pop Health Week, and we'll have to get you back. All right. Thank you. Happy holidays, by the way. Yes, happy holidays. See you. And back to you, Greg. And that is the last word on today's broadcast. I do want to thank Dr. Joseph Webb, the CEO of Nashville General Hospital, for his time and insights today. Do follow his work on Twitter by I am Joseph Webb and at Nash Gen Hospital, respectively, and on the web via www.nashvillegeneral.org. And finally, If you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please like the show on the podcast platform of your choice and do share with your colleagues and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they're posted. For Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. 